Do you ever wonder what happened to your friends from high school? I mean, you were so close. You laughed together, you cried together, you shared some of the best years of your lives together, and yet, somehow through life, you just lost touch. Now it's time to relive those moments once again. Introducing the podcast that takes you back in time to the place where it all began. This is Class Reunion. We're bringing you all the gossip, secrets, and scandals from your high school days that you won't want to miss. Join us as we catch up with old classmates and dive into the wildest stories from our high school days. From those legendary parties to the infamous cliques, we're spilling all the tea on who's who and what really went down. So grab a seat, turn your volume up, and get ready for a trip down memory lane. Class Reunion, the podcast that reunites us all. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Class Reunion. So glad you could be here today. Today will be a single episode with your host, Leanne Pepper, and we're continuing our fabulous story of crazy times back in the 80s and how to navigate what you didn't know back then that you should have So we talked about me being a latchkey kid, which so many of you gave me such great remarks of understanding that that time period in our life. That was great. Um, And then I would say the biggest feedback I got was from junior high, because now we're talking about body images and home dynamics. And boy, were you all very, very thoughtful and caring in your personal responses back to me. And I greatly appreciate it. Always feel free to reach out to me at any time. It makes me feel less alone in my storyline and to know that you're all here listening with me. So it's really not just a story about me, Leanne. It's really about all of us at this time. And it doesn't mean that if you had a wonderful, perfect childhood, there's anything to be ashamed of. It's more about back then what we didn't know and what we couldn't Google and what we had to find out and learn for ourselves. And that's what I want to talk about today as we continue the story is just maybe what I I didn't know was happening or couldn't uh, stop. The other thing I wanted to say is no matter what, it seems like we all have this great memory of things we were able to do in our childhood that brought back great memories. But it wasn't always perfect in high school. And it doesn't matter if you had a small group of friends or a large group of friends. I think we all shared some level of insecurity, which I found fascinating to find out. And also, you know, hey, enlightening. We were all the Falcons together. And so we should go into our class reunion remembering that, that we weren't all in this perfect place that we all thought we were. But it's worth going back and reminiscing and laughing about the good times. So today we've gone from junior high to high school. And I ended my last podcast calling it Kathy's Kingdom. And and it was, and it's in a good way and in a bad way. So with every plus that came to my mom being at the school, you know, it obviously be very hard. I know some people had their parents volunteer or they were teachers or principals. So I wasn't alone in having a faculty member at the high school. Mine was just sort of in the thick of knowing everything and and it changes how she wants me to be perceived in school. So let's begin. We enter to Kathy's Kingdom in high school and like we've shared many times before, we were unique in that we brought a grade along with us so we weren't the youngest to be 10th, 11th, and 12th. It was 9 through 12. And while that did erase some of the nerves of, of coming into the high school, it did make it bigger. I think it gave us the ability to get lost a little quicker if you didn't have some secure footing. So if you're coming into it like I was already pretty insecure, it just magnifies some of those issues that were already there. So in terms of where I found I would find my place, I went to, and I've told this story to uh, Barb Doyle, it's her maiden name, but I've told her this story before. I was 
thinking I was going to go back into basketball. Now, I played in Berkshire Junior High. I was terrible, but I was short. I was a guard. That's what you do. And I had enough joy in finding extracurricular sports as a way of getting me out of the house that I always loved having something to do um, after school. So I thought for sure I would try out for, for basketball, women's basketball. And I'm in the locker room. And I don't know what everybody ate that summer, but everyone shot up like a tree. And I'm in there with the same shorts that I wore in probably seventh or eighth grade. And I thought, okay, it's still good to be a guard, but these ladies were now women and everybody just felt like six feet tall. And I thought, I will never be able to pass the ball to anybody, let alone shoot. And you know that feeling of when you get snuffed, like you're going to go, you know, throw the ball to the hoop and somebody just whacks it. I was like, there is no way if this is how big my home team is, all of the schools we're going to play are that that size are bigger. I can't do it. So I literally, I don't even know if anybody saw me in the locker room. I changed so fast and left. So that's just a funny story. And so there there became the role of like, what do I want to do? And this is another confession is I didn't want to become a varsity cheerleader because they intimidated me. So I didn't try out for varsity football because it just was a group that I felt I, I couldn't belong in. And not that basketball was any different, but it was a smaller group. And I thought maybe the chances of me making it were better. I don't know. I don't know. I just thought that that would be a better fit for me. So I tried out for being the cheerleader in basketball. And probably I had crush on all the really tall boys. Anytime you're four foot 11, you seem to like people that are six foot. But so I did try out for that. And I did get that. And it was a lot of fun. And I still, you know, adore all the girls that I cheered with. We had a good time. Plus, we didn't have to be in the rain, which was a bonus or cold weather. But that's how I became a basketball cheerleader. So that should give you an indication of how I was feeling about myself at the time that I started Groves. So at this time, I was starting to get the negative voices in my head at dinner where I would get the debrief on the day and who was doing what. And, you know, it, it, it's natural, I think, because my mom was there. So that was the topic of conversation. But it was just, again, weird dinner conversations. She would always talk about what was going on with everybody and trying to use leverage over who's succeeding to me. And then my dad was at the end of the table, never wanting to hear about it. And they would have conflict. And so it was just, it was, I hated dinner, to be honest with you. I just did. And I just realized that I was also starting to be labeled as not a good student. So the more my mom knew who the teachers were in every grade, the next year my class schedule would change indicative of where my mom thought I should be. And that's a bummer, right? So I wasn't smart enough to be in Mrs. Feluca's class or Miss Slaughter's. I had to be in, I can't remember his name, Mr. Wilson. I don't know who did biology. There were just a lot of classes that were chosen for me based on the teachers and you believe what you hear, right? So whether I could have done well in chemistry, I don't know. I was never given that opportunity. My course schedule was always arranged based on where my mom felt I should be, whatever, you know, but it's painful. 
at the time. So that was never fun for me to always feel like there was control in my time at, at Groves. And I talk about Kathy's kingdom because obviously every kingdom needs a court. And so every year when I would make homecoming court, which is a blessing, it was really sweet. I mean, it was very nice. It was just it was something she was living through and very proud of more for herself and to be able to tell people about it because I just wasn't doing anything except basketball cheerleading as my extracurricular. So by the time I became homecoming queen, you can imagine how she was feeling about that. And the irony is she wasn't even home. They were out with some friends for the weekend, which is perfectly fine, but it was scheduled. And so I brought my brother, Tim, down from Michigan State to walk me to the field. And I just remember never in a moment thinking it was going to be me because I just wasn't, we were all just fun girls that were all uh, nominated. And, you know, just some schools, I guess you compete for it. I guess some people you campaign in some school systems in other states, but, you know, this was all just by voting. So who cares who was going to get it? And we were, you know, having our floats and we all had to line up. And anyway, they said my name. And of course, you know, my best friend, Nancy, was the first one there to jump the fence and give me a big hug. And so that was very, very sweet. And uh, it was lovely. It was a great night. But, you know, uh, in true fashion of where I don't go out to parties, we went back to my house and ordered pizza. Woohoo! I have a picture of uh, the pizza guy delivering pizza, it, you know, he, we're like, oh, she just became homecoming queen. And he's like, whatever, I'm just here to deliver pizza. So, but really weird, and I shouldn't knock it, but this is where my perception of gift giving came in. So on the kitchen counter was a necklace and a letter from my parents. And they were wanting me home because they wanted to call. And, and you know, naturally, I'm sure they felt bad they weren't there. But it's this perception of just rewarding you with gifts that I'm going to explain why I hate it, even to this day. So, you know, it was this really nice letter about being proud of me, which again, I didn't do anything. You know, it was more of a title than it was anything I ran for. And so there was this tremendous pride, like you did it, blah, blah, blah. And it was a locket, I think. I don't even remember. And it was like 20 minutes of me having to thank them for thinking of me and knowing I was going to win. I guess um, I forget the announcer that did the football, but he knew my parents were going to go away. So he told my mom that, you know, I... I had won because he knew she would feel bad for leaving. And so the day before they left, I don't know how it all went down. But anyway, she seemed to know, again, the hawk. And it's just weird to me to go back to that moment because it seems so silly, I guess, that it was such a big deal. Which brings me to gift giving. So I didn't know that book, you know, Love Language, well after my divorce, obviously didn't read the book. And... um I will tell you that I cringe even to this day with gifts and primarily jewelry. So there was a jewelry store called Tapalian's Jewelry, and it was in Southfield. Very lovely family. I think if anybody remembers them, they will say nothing but nice things about the family. So I no criticism there. But I'm going to tell you right now, that store, you would walk down and there would be a bell ringing when you opened it up. That's the, that was the security back in the day to let you know somebody was there. And it was, I don't know, maybe a two or three time year thing that my mom and I did because she would bring me along 
while they were customizing some piece of jewelry for my mom. And just those things that you remember, like opening that door with that bell, that ding, it just sends chills up my spine. It makes my skin crawl because it was just such a, ugh. Anyway, that's painful. But I will tell you right now, I'm just going to cut to the chase and pull the Band-Aid off. They had such a horrific emotional and physical relationship that I look at jewelry as a way for my dad to control the outcome of those poor habits and choices. And that is why I do not like gifts. So we would spend all this time at Depalions and she'd bring me in there and she'd almost cry every single time about how generous her husband was. And, and then we would gather at Christmas or Mother's Day or her birthday, whatever it was that he was getting a, a piece of jewelry customized for her. And we would have to sit in the family room and sit around and he would slowly bring the box out and she would be crying. And I'm thinking, you saw it 15 times. I, you know what it looks like, but whatever. The presentation had to be, you know, uh, paying homage to this man and, oh, Tom, and she would cry. And I got to tell you, what would probably be a beautiful moment has always made my skin crawl. So to me, jewelry is just a way of being so passive and aggr passive aggressive. It, it's just like I can say and do what I want to you all year as long as I give you some jewelry. And let's be honest, I've mentioned it in a few episodes. It was really so she could share with her friends what her husband had given her. I mean, I know it sounds really dumb. Why didn't I figure this out back then? But but I didn't. I was so immersed in the co-relationship with my parents. I was part of that marriage that I just didn't see it. And I was like needing to respond at the same level, which is really messed up. But it became this thing between my mom and I where I was supposed to appreciate what he had done for her, almost like I think in her weird way, like you have to forgive him because look what he did. And it just never sat right with me. Now I'm immature. I don't really understand. This is where it goes to your toolbox. You know, kids can Google, you know, relationships now. They can learn. They can talk to the therapist. They can tell their neighbors. This is back in the 80s when you were still never really allowed to share a single fault of your families. And now magnify that with your mom in high school, whom everybody loves. And by the way, this will end up having its closure in a good way at the end. But this is really where I was in the 80s. So just bear with me. I, I know how loved she was. I, I, I don't mean to disparage that. She was a woman caught in an abusive relationship that her sanctuary became school. And ding, 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 ding. So did mine. So I totally get it. It's like if you can go and be friendly to everybody else, it takes away the pain. But what you're not recognizing is that pain should be something that you want to walk away from. And without her ever doing it, I never did. So anyway, there's pictures I'll share with me opening jewelry at Christmas where <laughs> you'll see me crying. Oh God, it's so embarrassing. But it was the conditioning that I was taught back in the day. Like if a man gives you jewelry, it doesn't matter how expensive it is. It's like you're supposed to just drop their drawers and, you know, give them big thanks. You know what I'm talking about. And I just, I, I, I didn't know how much I wasn't digging it at the time, um, but couldn't stand up for 
thinking there was another way out because then I was going to be a single old lady, you know, it was kind of like, this is how you get a husband. So honestly, to this day, I absolutely do not like jewelry. And I didn't know words of affirmation is my love language. Once I read the book, well into my forties, I think. And, um, here's the weird thing. When you've been so belittled your whole life, words of affirmation become really difficult to accept. So even though that's what I needed, I could never express it because I never felt worthy. No one ever said anything like that. And when they did, I was always downplaying it. Even now, like people will say nice things about the podcast and I'm like, oh, well, whatever. You know, I play everything down. It's a muscle I need to exercise every single day because if that is my love language, I better get my shit together. You know, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. But anyway, gifts just make me vomit. That's the bottom line. And I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but to me, it's a big ass control. So going back to the class schedule, the funny thing was, I remember, I think it was Mr. Shazewski, and I'm saying it may be wrong. He's, he taught government. And my mom was, you know, and this was the year, right, fully so. It was junior year, and you're, you're really concerned about those grades because those are what you submit to college. And she was like, you need to take summer school because, you know, you need a different teacher. He's the only one that's teaching it in Groves, and you need to go to see home for summer school and take it there. And there I go into see home and sit down. And who decides to, for the first time in his career, <laughs> teach summer school? Mr. Shazewski. So... I come home and I'm like, mom, I have them anyway. And she is just like, we got to get you out of there, blah, blah. But I'm starting to like see the pattern. And I, while I didn't get mad at her, I stayed in the class and I, I did well. I got an A or B. I don't think I like four pointed it, but I, I did really well. And it was kind of like, I can do this. The whole high school years were just so incredibly painful and so repeatable. I knew every weekend what, what fight was going to come. I knew every week what dinner fight was going to come. It just was like Groundhog Day. And it really plays into your psyche. And that's all I'm really going to say about that. So now I'm I'm moving on to college, but I'm so I'm so destroyed at this point that I really didn't know what to do. And I went to Central to be with Nancy because we were going to go to college together. I'd never been to the campus. My parents had never been to the campus. And I went and took my car, my beautiful little beige Chevette, and we drove up there. And, and it was okay that my parents didn't come, but they also didn't care either. It was really weird. And I started to want to become uh, rebellious because it was now my first time to be myself. But guess what? Didn't know who I was. So that's a bad combination. And I took like, I think 20 credits the first semester of some ungodly amount. I just sat there and filled out classes because people were cute that I was sitting next to. One kid I really liked at one of the orientations and we had a really good time. And then I came back for the new school year and he went into the army. <laughs> So that was pretty funny because I based my whole schedule on this cute boy and then he didn't even come back to Central. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. So this is when I just became a wackadoo. And there's a whole lot about Central that was fun and a whole lot that was really ugly. But I will tell you where the shift was and where I, I started to really understand the balance of power. And I didn't know how I was going to navigate it, but I was, I was understanding it. So I was looking in the catalog, which 
that's weird, right? Everybody does everything online. So you get that big book of classes that you're reading through. And I sat in a beanbag chair in our dorm. I remember it. My roommates, Jennifer, Karen, and Nancy. I originally had wanted to be in psychology, but I was so screwed up myself that the last thing I wanted to do was major in that stuff. So I was going through and really had a draw towards a marketing degree. And I had a lot of my parents' friends' kids were in advertising. It was really big at Michigan State. And I thought, well, that's more at my alley. I mean, I just felt like it suited my personality. And I remember sitting there with the phone cord all the way to the mean being big chair talking about it. And I said, you know, I think I want to start moving my major towards marketing. And my dad is in the background, like he always is. Now, fun fact, he never spoke to me ever on the phone. Um, he really didn't even, I mean, he had to once my mother died, but most of the time he was barking in the background. And he said, Kat, Kathleen, Kathleen. And then you hear this muffle, muffle, muffle. And she gets back on the phone and she said, your father doesn't want you to go into marketing because that's what he does. And it's really hard. Let me repeat that. I can't do it because my dad's in marketing and it's really hard. <laughs> I mean... Let us just reflect on that for a moment. And so now I'm getting really pissed because I see what's going on. And now, you know, while he was controlling my mom, most of the time I lived in the house. Now that I'm away, I don't see their day-to-day -day interactions. And so it's like two against one trying to control me. And I was not having it. Uh, it really started to deteriorate the codependency. But when you're already so into it, it's, it's so hard to get out. But, you know, I was, I was wanting to get out of it. And by getting out of it, you have to really fall deep before you find your way out. So I remember coming home from college that first year uh, at Christmas time. I'm sure I was feeling like every class. I had dropped a couple. They never even checked on me. And my mom, we sat in front of the fireplace. I don't have to see if I can find the picture. And she was like, you look like a fat sausage. <laughs> Some of these things I'm recalling in my mind. I hope you're laughing with me. But we actually later in life talked about it all the time, about how she called me a fat sausage. I mean, these things matter. Now, I do see where I've screwed up in my parenting. So I, I'm going to you know, disclose that at the end here and do an apology to my son. But, you know, right off the get-go, I mean, first of all, yeah, we all get the freshman 15, but I just didn't think that was the area that we needed to focus on. But she did, because now I'm going to be home for a couple of weeks. Her friends are going to be coming by. I don't have straight A's to be talking about. Again, the looks are where I'm going to succeed, because I don't really think that she thought a college degree was going to be a career. It was a an end to a means of my education, but she constantly, constantly talked about me marrying someone from a country club or an executive working at the automotive industry. Like that was, that was where I was destined to be. So I don't think they really cared what I majored in. I think they just wanted me to get in and get out and then, you know, get down on my knees. I don't know. <laughs> this is a funny episode. Sorry. It's all over the map. But uh, so it, it, it did not go very well. By the time I started to really have shit hit the fan in college, I was wanting to scream and share my story with someone because I started to feel a little bit safer 
away from home. And um, the trauma was already there, let's be honest. And I was trying to work through it, but didn't have the skills. And uh, it didn't work in my favor for a lot of reasons. And so by the time I was in the position where I wanted to be a whistleblower, the whistle blew on me and it just was not good. So anywhere I went for help, somebody knew my family and no one, even to this day, and it's okay, I don't really care. It's my story, but no one believes me on some of the situations that transpired in my home. Um, Because as soon as you say, you know, my mom ripped off her shirt while she was yelling at me and sat on me while we were trying to escape into the car, no one's going to believe me. There's no one that's going to believe this story right now. I mean, there were some really violent situations. And I will tell you that, you know, I started to really resent her and my closest friends and boyfriends knew they did and kept my secret. Or maybe they didn't, but they did enough to where no one still really believed me. And that meant a lot to me because at least I had an outlet and somebody that I could talk to. But it was really hard to have the things happen to me and then have to walk out of the house and put on a smile and pretend like we were the perfect household going to Sunday mass. You know what I'm saying? I I started to really understand that my voice was never going to be heard. And so I started to pick really bad relationships. Duh. And the one person that I dated when I was in my 20s, he was at the Oakland Hills Country Club. And it was like just a bad relationship because I was still in this really codependent relationship with my parents. And I was always crying about something. And I was always having a dramatic situation at home. And no fault to that guy. You know, hello, uh, I don't need that baggage. So that never amounted to anything. And so by the time I found my husband, um, I had actually just broke up with that boyfriend. It was just, I guess, timing to help me move on because it wasn't anybody from the area. He was from Dearborn. So I was like, thank goodness. You know, he doesn't know my mom and nobody knows him. And um, and I'll leave that story for another time because leading up to even the wedding was just a horrific sign of how I was never really destined to be Leanne. I mean, who is she? You know, there was just never... Never moment in the decision making process that I did where I knew who I was and what I wanted to do. And I, I think a lot of us were lost at that age, but then you put all of this needing to be accepted and needing to look good and not feeling good at the same time, not feeling good about anything. It's 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 a perfect storm for somebody that's unstable, unhappy, and lost, you know? And what did I have to sh- give to anybody? And so the more, and this is in life with everything, you you know, you meet people at the level of your own security. You know, I think if you're super confident and you know where you are in the world, you connect with those people that are like-minded. If you don't have anything to bring to the table, you're going to find somebody who just has a table and you're just happy to sit at it. You know what I'm saying? That's That was me. That's my analogy. I probably should have stuck to psychology, but so here's my apology to my son and also where I think Gen X did go a little haywire. I went overboard in my obsession with his success because I wanted him to believe in himself much more than he did. And I was obsessed with making him believe it, if that makes sense. So, you know, there was enough going on in his life that he had some struggles and it was a bad relationship after the divorce and his father and him no longer are speaking. And 
So I was trying to be every family member, you name it, mother, father, aunt, sister, brother, niece, nephew, mailman, you know, teachers. I was trying to play every role to make him feel secure in life and ended up being like this life's mission where I was too overboard with it. And that's where I was coming from. Now, he knows this. I mean, hello, Joe. He knows all of this, but it's still such an indicative ramification of people of our era that came from trauma refused to let the kids experience that. So then I think that's kind of where we came up with snack day and we we were going to be there for everything and we were going to tell our kids how great they were. And, um, you know, I think that's maybe where a lot of it comes from is just not having those words of affirmation. So um, my need for Joe to feel like he was handsome and confident and smart and all of that, it was a bummer when those things didn't happen, meaning, you know, if he didn't do well on a test or he didn't want to study or he, you know, lied about a grade, I would lose my poop because I was trying so hard for his opportunities not to be limited, if that makes sense. So it was a weird, like I, he tried to change or what do they say? Like break the cycle, but I created a different cycle. You know, it was, it at times wasn't good for him and it wasn't good for me. And it was, you know, he'd go back and forth on the weekends. We got divorced by the way, fun fact, when he was one. So he was always in a broken household and, you know, you just pick him up and you're trying to change habits and you're trying to catch up with what, you know, it's just everybody who's been through that totally understands and you're still blaming each other and just you go overboard in what you want to do because you are trying so hard to be a full-time parent that has impact. And I have talked to my son about this, by the way, which is why I don't mind sharing being from a single parent household in a predominantly married neighborhood in school system, which I purposely chose for that reason. I didn't want him to not see functioning families or people that had siblings or I, I always wanted him to be around that. Like it was never where I wanted to be, you know, on Misfit Island and not that people who get a divorce are misfits, but there was no reason for me to be jealous of anybody else who had a family. It was like, family to me. It was family for us. Like people took Joe under their, his, their wing and, you know, I loved all of that, um, which is why I stayed in the Catholic church as much as I did, despite the embezzlement <laughs> by my priest, because it was like everyone from school, you know, and I tried really, really hard to create that environment. And that's why I shared with Jennifer Brookemeyer, like my adoption story. I tried to have another child, you know, to bring the family because I just knew I couldn't be everything to my kid. and the more that he would fight me on it, the more unsuccessful I felt. So that's where a lot of my arguing with my son came about because I kept telling him, you're, you're proving the reflection of a single mom that I can't do it. You're proving that I didn't raise you right. You're proving that I don't have morals or values or that I've you know tried to teach you right from wrong at home. You're proving everything I've worked so hard to not have you experience. And yet here we are, right? Can you imagine? I mean, that's just the perfect storm of one trauma replaced with another. Now, my son and I are super, super close, but 
you know, that's, I think, where Gen X has a unique way of looking back on how or why we raise our children the way we did. I do think some of that comes to play. And, and it's tough. You know, I still worry about it and I still want him to be happy in his own way, but I'll always carry that burden of never, ever feeling good enough. And like I said, it's it's a muscle that I wake up every day and just move on from and try to be happy in my own world because I chose all of these things. I chose to be close to my parents. I chose not to get out of that relationship any sooner. I was not aware of all the things that I am today at 57 that I should have been. And I truly beat myself up for a really long time about that. But that part, that part, I will tell you, I'm over. I'm over blaming myself. I'm just working on myself, if that makes sense. So I have given myself grace in that I did the best that I could. I had a successful career in software. I tried to do the best I could. So that part I'm okay with. But it's just now that my son is gone. He's an adult and living his whole life. And me being like kind of pushed out of the software industry, I'm down here in Naples trying to figure things out. And it brings me to... 2020. So, well, I'll, maybe I'll go to my mom's passing. I'll do that um, under that one, which was about 10 years ago. So I'll bring you up to speed um, from my mom and then my dad and why 2020 was more of a shit show, not due to COVID, but to having to take care of my dad and his final final time. So, hey, don't mean to make this a downer, but it does explain a lot of that time for all of us, I think, and maybe you know, I don't mind sharing who I am to all of you and giving you more insight into your 1984 homecoming queen. Peace out, everybody. See you next week. All right, friends, that's it for this episode of Class Reunion Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show, write us a review and share this podcast with a friend. Until next time.